Philippians chapter number 4. I want to just read two verses to you tonight. Verse uh, number 6 tells us, Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this evening, this time that you've allowed us. Help us with reverence in our hearts, Lord, and submission in our lives to examine ourselves in light of your word. But, Father, more importantly, to allow you to examine us through the light of your word. I pray, Father, that each and every heart would be touched according to its need. Father, that which would make us most holy and draw us closest to you. If there's one amongst us that's lost and undone, I pray you'd show them their need of Calvary. Lord, meet each heart's need for your glory, for your honor. We love you tonight, Lord. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Philippians chapter number 4 is probably one of my favorite portions of the Word of God. As Paul is uh, finishing up this prison epistle to the church at Philippi, he gives a list of commands in chapter number 4. And uh, just to look at a few of them, let me say they're all good. Amen. All of the Word of God is good. It's all needed and it's all vital and it all changes us. And he gives a few uh, commandments here just to point them out, just to notice them. Verse number 3, he says to help those women which labored with me in the gospel. And I believe we ought to try to be a help to those that are laboring in the gospel. That doesn't just deal with those in full-time ministry, but any that are seeking and endeavoring to serve God. I think we ought to try to be an encouragement and a help to them. Verse number 4 says to rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. And I think praise ought to be a part of our life. I believe there's been much too little said about praise in this day that we live in, uh, particularly amongst fundamental churches. Now, we don't mind a quiet praise, but we don't like it when people get noisy with their praise. But the Word of God is very explicit. When it says rejoice, it's not describing something that is calm and reserved, but describing a jubilant acclamation of our joy in the Lord. And I believe we ought to rejoice. Verse number 5 says, To let your moderation be known unto all men, the Lord is at hand. I believe we ought to live with the coming of the Lord in our lives. I believe we ought to live in the throne room with our eyes towards the eastern sky. I believe we ought to live in such a way that the Lord will not be ashamed of us at His coming. Verse number 8 says, Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, here's the command, think on these things. Let me say that the mind is uh, the battlefield on which much is won or lost. And I think we speak often of the soul, but when we speak of the soul, what we're really dealing with is the emotional seat of the body, the mind, the consciousness. And I believe our mind is a very important thing. I was just reading today in 2 Corinthians where Paul commands them, says that the weapons of our warfare are not uh, carnal, but are mighty to the pulling down of strongholds and to the casting down of every uh, imagination that exalteth itself, every high thing that exalteth itself against God and bringing into subjection every thought unto the obedience of Christ. And I believe we ought to uh, occupy our mind with the things of God. Look at verse 9 just to give you one more uh, before we move on. Paul says those things which ye have both learned and received and heard and seen in me. I like this little word, do. It's simple. It doesn't overstress an idea, nor does it underemphasize it. But the Lord simply says, do it. Just do it. Do the things that you've been commanded. And I could say that many of us are guilty of being commanded but not doing. 
We're guilty of the Holy Spirit of God revealing things to us that we don't act upon, that we don't act within. And this little command is given, just do these things, uh, these things, and the God of peace shall be with you. I think a lot of people struggle without having the peace of God because they're not willing to do the things that God has asked them to do. Let me say, until you're willing to submit to God, you're never going to have the peace of God. Uh, the only way you have peace is by letting the Prince of Peace reign. The only way this world's ever going to have peace is when the Prince of Peace is seated upon his earthly throne. The only way that you're ever going to have peace in your life is when the Prince of Peace is seated upon the throne room of your heart. Many things are commanded in this little chapter. But verses 6 and 7 give us, I believe, one of the most important. And I've titled tonight's message, Dealing with Worry. Uh, I'm going to be honest with you, as a preacher, I I tend to try to stay away from psychoanalytical things. I try to stay away from anything with the word psycho in it. Somebody say amen right there. You know, I don't deal with a lot of these things, but I do believe there is a place for this. I believe the Word of God deals explicitly, explicitly with the notion of worry in these two verses. I believe worry is a real issue in the Christian life. I believe if you don't think worry is a real issue in the Christian life, you don't have anything to worry about or you ain't found nothing yet, but there'll come a time when you will. We all struggle with worry, and really worry is an offense against faith. The book of Romans chapter 14 says, Whatsoever is not of faith is sin. And there's a lot of ways we could twist that out of context, but what I simply believe it means is this, anything that we do with doubt concerning our walk with Christ Uh, Something's lacking. Something's missing. When we doubt God, that is a sin. And worry is our way of telling God we do not trust Him. I wanted to read a little anecdote to you. I don't do this often, but I read this and I found it uh, humorous and and interesting. The Reverend R.C. Trench, who was at one time the Protestant Archbishop of Dublin, had a morbid fear of becoming paralyzed. I think that's a fear that a lot of people probably share. One evening at a dinner party, the lady he sat next to, next to at a dinner heard him muttering mournfully to himself. He said, it's, it's happened at last. Total insensibility of the right limb. She looked at him and said, Your grace, it may comfort you to learn that that's my leg you're pinching and not your own. Amen. And you know, the truth of the matter is, many times we concoct things to worry about. But can I say there's a lot in this life to worry about concerning the natural man. If our natural man governs us, there'll be much we'll worry about. And let me say that it's a natural thing to worry. My old pastor used to always say, what we are not by nature, we can become by grace. And I want us to just look at this passage and just notice three thoughts here tonight. I'm not going to keep us long. Uh, now you've got something else to worry about, whether I meant that or not. Amen. But I want us to notice this first little phrase in verse number 6, where the Apostle Paul writes and says, Be careful for nothing. Now, we use that term careful today, and we use it to mean cautious. But if you look at the word explicitly, and I'm not a Greek scholar or Hebrew scholar, I do well with English sometimes, but sometimes I struggle with that, amen? But I know that if you break down the word careful, what it means is full of care. And what the Apostle Paul is saying here is that as Christians, we ought to live with an anxietyless life. Now, that may be difficult to do. In fact, I'd say I know it's difficult to do. The command would not be given if it were not a difficult thing to do. God doesn't have to tell us to do things that are natural. He has to tell us to do things that we have to do by His help and grace. And in this passage, I want us to notice just a few things about this phrase. And I've divvied up this way. If you're taking notes, you can jot these down. I want us, first off, to look at the problems of life. 
And now I want us to take a moment and look at the prayer of leaving. And then take a moment and look at the peace of the Lord. In verse number 6 in this first phrase, I believe the problems of life are addressed. And I think the first thing that we see here is that the Lord considers our cares. And you say, preacher, what do you mean? Well, the very fact that the Lord is commanding this leads us to understand that the Lord knows there will be things in our life to worry about. If you look at your life, you can always find something to worry about. And truth be told, just the fear of the unknown is sufficient for a lot of people to worry. I've met people in my life that the motto of their life was, why be happy when you can worry? Why be at peace when you can worry? I mean, why assume the best when you can assume the worst? And certainly, if you look at the realm of human experience, there are things that take place that would lead us to feel this way because we live in troublesome times in a sin-cursed world and in a difficult society. When we look around, there's no question there are things to worry about. You flip the TV on and you'll hear about Syria. Today it's Syria. It won't be long before it's something else. It wasn't long ago it was uh, Libya, was it? Wasn't long ago it was Afghanistan. Wasn't long before that it was Iraq. And on through the annals of human history we could go and see things that give care to the human soul. There's no question we have things to worry about. I think often about, uh, well I do now anyways, about this baby that I've got coming up. And uh, November 28th, if the doctors are correct, I, I have the suspicion that's about like predicting the weather. Amen. Uh, they, they've predicted whether or not we're going to have a baby, and I'm happy with that. I, I don't really care what day it comes on as long as it's healthy. But uh, I've talked to many parents, and most of them say the same thing. They say you'll know a new level of worry. A new level of worry. I gave the illustration just the other night, and I won't burden you with the entirety of it. Most of you heard it about when I first began to drive, and uh, I pulled out of the driveway the first time, and I remember the look on my mother's face, a new level of worry. And there's always things to worry about. If you love someone, there's something to worry about. If you have something in your life that you cherish, there's always a place for worry to reside. And certainly the only way that a man could live without worry being a natural element would be if he were totally hopeless. And then if I know man correctly, he'd worry about his hopelessness. The fact is, worry is going to exist. Your problems are going to exist. And you won't find a rose-colored pair of glasses that come with any Bible. The Bible does not command us to be blind to the troubles and difficulties of life. If you read through the Word of God, you'll find people whose lives were full of trouble. You'll find people whose lives were full of difficulty and trial and tribulation. And God never commands us to ignore those things. He considers our cares. But I want you to notice the second thing. He cautions our concern. You say, what do you mean, preacher? Well, not only is this an acknowledgement that we're going to have trouble in life, but this is a command that is given, and this is a warning that's given. Can I say, you know, God never does anything but what is for your good and His glory. Everything in your life is for your good and for His glory. It may not be for your comfort, but it's always for your consecration. It may not be for your happiness, but it's always for your holiness. Everything in your life, God does it for your good. The book of Romans chapter 8, verse 28, we all know it very well, and we know that all things work together for good. To them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. Everything works together for good. And so when you read your Bible, understand that your Bible is not a book of restrictions. Now, there's plenty of places where the Word of God tells us what not to do. But understand that when God gives us a warning, it is for our good and for His glory. If the Bible commands us to be careful for nothing, it's because being careful for something or for everything will do us harm. The truth of the matter is, most people, I won't say most people, I'll say many people, their spiritual walks are uh, hindered and stunted by worry. 
They're constantly anxious about stepping out in some new venture of faith, going out further. Let me ask you a question. What would you do if God wanted to adjust your level of giving? Would you be willing to do it? Would you be able to do it without anxiety and without worry? Why is it we're so worried in our life that God will not care for us? What has God done to display a lack of care for you and I? What if God was to command you? And I know many people in this room will say, Oh, preacher, this would never happen. And can I say it never will happen when we dismiss it as being an impossibility? What if God was to call you into the ministry? What if God was to lay stake on your life for full-time work? What if God was to call you to a mission field? Could you go without worry? And you say, preacher, are you saying that there's not times when you worry in your life? No, certainly there's times when I worry, but there's never a time when I have to worry. And that's the difference. There's times when in the uh, frailty of my flesh and my weakness that I worry, just like you, just like anybody. But I'm conscious, too, that I never have to worry because I've got a God that's in control. It affects my spiritual walk when I live in worry. It paralyzes our growth with Christ when we live with worry. And I believe that we live in a day that is so tumultuous that worry has become part and parcel for our life. And it's getting to a place where we don't even address it because it's so commonplace. When we worry, we're assuming that God is either unaware of our situation or unconcerned with us. One of the two. The Bible cautions us against this Concerned. Let me give you a third thing, and I'm going to move on. This is just a few quick thoughts. Let me say that this is a command of our confidence. We think often of the Ten Commandments. Nothing wrong with that. I believe we ought to. I believe any portion of the Word of God can be memorized and applied to our life in some aspect and help us. But often we do not take into consideration that the whole Word of God is filled with commands, not just the Ten Commandments, not just the Old Testament law, but even throughout the Psalms and the, the prophets and even throughout the book of Proverbs and on and on through the Old Testament. Let me go a step farther. Say all through the New Testament, commands are given. God has given us boundaries and guidelines by which to live our life. And this too, like many others, is a command that's given. This isn't an option, but it's a command. It demands our obedience. Be careful for nothing. It's interesting, and God, I suppose, could have said this if He had chose to do so. He can do all things whatsoever He pleaseth. But God did not say, if you want to be happy, be careful for nothing. I'd say if you're full of care over things, you're probably not going to be happy. But God didn't phrase it that way, did He? God could have said, well, if you want peace in your life, be careful for nothing. And certainly the rest of the text bears out the truth of that statement. But God didn't say it that way, and He could have. Instead, God issues it as an imperative command for our life, dictating and designating to you and I that God expects our trust. Can I say that again? I don't think we got that. God expects our trust. Now, we think often that God is pleased by our trust, and He is. And we think often that God is given liberty to work in our lives through our faith and confidence and trust. But very rarely, because we are frail humans, because He is the omnipotent God, do we think about the truth that He expects our trust. You say, preacher, well, that's unfair. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. Surely He knows how frail we are. He does know how frail we are. But He also understands how good He's been. God's not done anything to cause me to doubt Him. Oh, I've doubted Him. But He's not given me any reason to doubt Him. God's never given me a reason to worry about anything. I would challenge 
And, of course, we're not going to do it. I, I believe it would be a mute point, but I certainly could challenge anyone to stand up and proclaim a time when God truly failed them in their life. We could have an audience, a congregation twice this size, a thousand times this size, a million times this size, or a billion times this size, if the world could contain that many people, if they were walking this earth, and nowhere could you find one person that could proclaim that God has failed them. Great is thy faithfulness. That wasn't written in the lavish palaces of comfort and leisure, but in the rubble and ash heap of a destroyed city. Jeremiah said, great is thy faithfulness. What did Jeremiah recognize? He recognized that even in the midst of difficulty, God's been good. Even when everything else has been bad, God's been good. Even when everything else has failed, God's been good. He's never failed. Jeremiah said his mercies are new every morning. Every morning. You see, this commands our trust. Not only does God not give us a reason to doubt Him, but He commands that we trust Him. The greatest command concerning faith, of course, is that of saving faith, that we put our faith in the effectual death of Jesus Christ upon Calvary. That's a command. Now you say, preacher, God gives us free will. Sure He does. Sure He does. You have the choice in the matter. But your only hope and your only help in this life is the free, paid, full pardon of Christ on Calvary. That's a command. That's not optional. God doesn't give you a third option. It's either accept or reject Him, one of the two. It's a command that's given. But can I say, even in our lives, uh, that, that faith is not an optional matter. If we're going to live for Christ, we, we need faith. If we're going to walk with Christ, we need faith, for we walk by faith and not by a sign. If we're going to live for Him, if we're going to serve Him, all things must be done by faith and through faith. And without faith, it's impossible to please Him. For he that cometh to God must believe that He is, and that He is the rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. This is not a suggestion. This is a command that's given. The problems of life are addressed, but I want to say a word about the prayer of leaving. Hey, you say, preacher, why do you call it the, the prayer of leaving? Because I believe that in this verse we have the principle and ideal of what we call leaving something at the altar. And let me say that leaving something at an altar is not... Uh, refusing to take it up in prayer again. Leaving something at an altar is not pretending that that problem does not exist. But I'll describe to you what leaving it at an altar is. I want us to notice first off the scope of this peace that's given and of the leaving that we ought to employ. Look what it says. But in everything. But in everything. We have two absolute words juxtaposed together. Two absolute words laid side by side. And it's the word nothing. Now, you can't have varying degrees of nothingness. Nothing means nothing. You can't have a little bit of nothing or a lot of nothing. Nothing is an absolute ideal and word. And the Bible says be careful for nothing. So what do we do with those things? What do we do with those cares? You know, the Bible describes cares almost like a tangible thing. And I understand that care is not a tangible thing and concern and worry is not a tangible thing. But it blesses me that God's willing to uh, simplify the idea so much that I can understand it. And the book of First Peter says, casting all your care upon Him. What is it we do with the cares that we have? God doesn't deny that we have worry. God doesn't deny that we have anxiety and concern. But what do we do with it? If we're to be careful for nothing, what do we do? But in everything, you have the casting of these cares mentioned in this moment. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. 
And the peace of God which passeth all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Can I say that there's nothing too big for God's shoulders? I've shared this with you a thousand times. There's a few anecdotes and analogies that I just like so much I want them ingrained in your memory like they are mine. Amen. So bear with me. But you've heard many times me tell the story of G. Campbell Morgan, the Bible teacher, the man that had pastored at Westminster Chapel in England. You've heard me many times describe the time that he was having a Bible conference and someone once asked him, Dr. Morgan, do you believe God cares for the small things in our life? And Dr. Morgan said, what could there be that would be big to God? Thereby implying there's nothing too big nor anything too small. And the truth of the matter is, I don't care what your biggest problem is, Christ dealt with sin in three hours on Calvary. That's how big our God is. That's how big our God is. The sin of an entire world multiplied over all of humanity. And the Savior dealt with it in three hours of darkness. He bore the sins of this world. What do you have that's too big for Him? You name it. You say, I've got some big bills. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. You say, I've got some sickness in my life. Well, you're talking to the great physician when you pray. You say, I've got anxiety and difficulty and emotional turmoil. Well, you're talking to the God of all comfort when you pray. What is it that you have that could be too big for an almighty God? There's nothing that you have. And so the Bible is absolutely appropriate, absolutely correct when it says, but in everything, not some things, but in everything. What are you facing? It's part of everything. What are you dealing with? It's part of everything. What's your fear? It's part of everything. But in everything, it's given. We see the scope. I want you to notice the source. What do we do with it? What is the source of this encouragement? How do we, uh, like J. Vernon McGee used to say, how do we put it in shoe leather? By prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. And I want to use just that little word, prayer. Prayer is absolutely the most unutilized source of power in the Christian wall. It was said once that two men were standing beside the great Niagara Falls, watching as the water uh, delved deep into the canyon. One of them was a preacher, and the other gentleman that was not looked at him and said, Sir, we're looking at the greatest untapped power source in the world. And he stopped him. He said, No, sir. The prayer life of a blood-washed believer is the most untapped power resource in the entire world. The Bible says, The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. You say, What's left over after much? Those things that are within the sovereign and almighty purposes of God. Other than that, it is prone susceptible, and can I use the word vulnerable, to the prayer of the saint. The truth of the matter is this. Prayers are means of coming before God. Who shall uh, dwell in the secret place of the Most High? Where is our audience? Where is our place? How do we connect with God? It's through the means of prayer. It's the source of our peace. Uh, If you've not prayed about it, you've not gotten serious about it yet. Can I give you a few things we're guilty of? This may convict you. I hope it does because it convicts me. (laughs) That at least keeps me honest. Amen. Can I say that we're guilty of asking people to pray for things that we've not prayed for? Stop and think about that in your life now. We're guilty of asking people to pray for things that we've not prayed for. The word prayer has become very abstract in our day. I believe we ought to redefine it biblically, don't you? 
And you'll hear people say things like, I'm sending prayers your way. I don't send them my way, send them God's way. I, I can do nothing with them. And we'll hear people use the term prayer as though it's just a well wish. We're wishing prayers your way. You don't have to wish if you have an audience with the King of Kings. You can come boldly before the throne of grace. You say, preacher, that's semantics. Well, maybe it is semantics, but I believe it, I believe it presents to us a redefining of the ideal of prayer. We have caused prayer to become an attitude of belief rather than an action of faith. And I think we're mistaken when we do that. We don't believe in prayer in the same way that we believe uh, in Santa Claus. It's an action that we employ because it works. Because it works, and it works because we have a God that listens. That's why we employ this action. That's why we employ this. That's why we do this, is because it works. That's our, that's our source. If you've not prayed about it yet, you're not, you're not serious about it. Let me give you something else that we're guilty of. Not only are we guilty of asking people to pray for things that we've never prayed for. But we're guilty of telling people we'll pray when we know good and well we won't. I know we all like to uh, claim that it's just awkward when someone asks you to pray for something. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'm a pastor. Did you know that? A few of you did. And a lot of people ask me to pray for things. And that's good. I like that. That's important. I want people to know that their pastor prays for them, prays for their needs. But I'm asked all the time to pray for things. I have to guard myself lest I cheapen prayer. I have to guard myself lest I cheapen it to a merely well-wishing ideal to comfort people rather than a place and a throne room to go to. Because the truth of the matter is this, when you have people vying for you to pray for them, by the way, my prayers do nothing more than yours do. You have an audience with Him like I have an audience with Him. In fact, if you knew me like I know me, you'd probably feel like you have a better audience with Him. And the truth of the matter is, it's easy to cheapen prayer to where it means absolutely nothing. If you tell someone you're going to pray for something, you better pray for it. If you don't, you've lied. You've lied. Now, you say, well, preacher, you know, sometimes it's hard. Nobody's asking you to spend hours. And even if they are, if you must tell them no, tell them no. At least you'll be honest. But don't lie to them and saying, yeah, I'll pray for that. When you don't. We're guilty of asking people to pray for things that that we've never prayed for and we don't want to pray for. We're guilty of telling people that we're willing to pray and that we will pray when we won't. I believe that we're guilty many times of praying for things without ever really believing God will give them to us. I want to be very, very clear in what I'm saying because I do not believe in a name it and claim it religion. I do not believe that God is at my beck and call, but I do believe that I'm part of the Beloved. I do not believe that God is required to do what I wish, but I do believe that He'll give me the desires of my heart if I will love Him and give Him the main and chief place in my life. But I believe that when we pray, if we pray without faith, we're wasting our time. I believe many times we pray for things and we pray without faith because we know deep down that what we're asking for is, is not honoring to God. And you say, preacher, are you saying we should only pray for spiritual things? No, the Bible is very explicit. That we are to pray for any and everything. We are to consistently ask God for things. Things that we deem big, things that we deem small. Things that might seem important, things that we might even know are unimportant. We don't know the importance of them many times when we do pray them. But the fact of the matter is this. Whatever we pray for, we ought to pray absolute. You say, preacher, what do you mean by that? I mean this. 
If I pray and if I go to the face of God over something, I better be willing to accept His will no matter what it is. That's how you get your prayers answered. You see, giving me the desires of my heart does not mean He's going to give me what I want. It means He's going to give me the wants that I need. He's going to change who and what I am and what I should want. And you'll find almost like a kaleidoscope, almost like a a merging of prisms, almost like a merging of lenses, that as our heart gets closer to the Savior, you'll find that our wants and His wants become aligned and we're both seeking the glory of God. That's the kind of prayer life we're commanded to have. The source is our prayer. But let me give you a third thing. I see the strength of our peace. We see the scope of it and the source of it, but the strength of it. Look what it says. Let your request be made known. I want you to underscore these last two words. Unto God. You see, the problem is, in this verse, we focus much on let your requests be made known. And that's important. I'm not saying we shouldn't. Every word of God is good and perfect. I'm not saying we don't need to emphasize that. But I'm saying the real strength of this, the real power of what Paul is saying here, is that little phrase, unto God. It's the fact that we're talking to someone that's able. Someone that's able. I was thinking today about uh, when the Bible talks about the weapons of our warfare are mighty. And I looked at that word mighty and what that word mighty means. And we talk about the mighty God of the Bible. And you'll find as you study through the Word of God that that word is translated various ways all through. It's the same word, but it's translated different ways. And time and time again, it's translated as able. Able. We teach our kids at a young age, we teach them to sing, He's able, He's able, I know He's able, I know my God is able to carry me through. And we teach them these little principles and these little ideals. We want them to indoctrinate and infiltrate and infect their lives. And then many times as we grow older, we allow them to slip. We come to a place where we just don't believe God's able anymore. We're talking to an able God. We're talking to a God whose will is perfect, but we're talking to a God who's able. Now think about those two thoughts next to each other. We're talking to a God whose will is perfect, so we don't need to fear it. But we're talking to a God that's able to do whatsoever He pleaseth. That's what sovereignty really is. Sovereignty is not that God's going to do anything and everything. Sovereignty is that God can do and will do what He desires to do. He's able. He's able to do these things. When you pray... You're seeking an audience with someone that's able. When you talk to God, when you let your requests be made known unto God. Let let me make a statement that I think we're all guilty of. We're guilty of talking to anybody and everybody in the world about our problems except the one person that's able. One person that's able. I I know uh, there's something cathartic about complaining. Amen? Not to the person you're complaining to, (laughs) but uh, for yourself. I mean, there's something comforting and calming about it. And we like to use the word vent. Amen. Vent. You don't want to get close to the wrong vent, though. You might not get what you're looking for, but vent. We're venting something. And I understand the notion to do that, and I would say there's been times I have, and you may be like me, and there may be times when you have. But understand that if something really needs to be accomplished, it's not accomplished in the gossip rooms. It's accomplished in the throne room. That's where something's done about it. We're often guilty of neglecting the throne room in light of the psychiatrist's couch, in light of the pharmaceutical company, in light of the uh, gossip lines and our friends' ears. I used to tell young people, it's ironic. You know, have we got any young people in here left? Any? Just a baby and Larry. 
Okay, a few. Can I, can I say something? I hope this doesn't sound bad. Teenagers are dumb. Is that okay to say? I was one, okay? And I was a youth pastor. Not just teenagers. I mean, adults are too sometimes. But I dealt with teenagers. And uh, <clears throat> teenagers have a tendency to complain to their 15, 14, 13-year-old friends and try to get together with them over a Coca-Cola and a bottle of Pop Rocks and fix the world while they neglect the advice and encouragement and guidance of those that have been down the road before them. Is that not correct? Is that not correct? Most of us have been around kids. I was uh, <clears throat> talking to someone about the other day about giving advice to young people, and I said, you know, sometimes it's futile, and sometimes it's good and it's important. I, I believe that, but sometimes it can be futile. And they said, well, what do you think of that? And I asked them, I said, let me ask you something. At their age, would you have listened? <laughs> and they said, no, no, I wouldn't have. We're awful hard on young people. But as grown adults with a relationship with Jesus Christ, more often than not, we're guilty of going to everyone else in the world instead of going to our Heavenly Father with our problems. It's not just that God wants us to blow off some steam and relieve some stress by complaining. It's not that God's wanting us to vent and, and share the... What's God wanting? God's wanting us to come to His throne room with the problem. I mean, in, in olden times, I guess if I could use that word, olden times, in ancient times, you could have no better recourse than an audience with the king. No better person that could solve your problem than the king. And we have the king of kings. We have the king of kings. I mean, it could have been in ancient times, you went to a king and had a dispute and something you wanted solved, and the will of another king might interfere, but we have the king of kings. We don't go to His throne room when we have free access. What a shame, what a shame. We see the prayer of leaving. You leave it at the throne room. Let me say this very simply, by praying and knowing who you've left it with and knowing that He desires to hear your perpetual prayer. Leaving something on the altar or before the Lord is not ignoring its existence, nor is it uh, ceasing from praying over it. But what it is, is recognizing the powerful truth that you've made known unto a thrice holy God, your situation, and that He cares for you. It's understanding that you've made known unto God your plight, that God has your best interests at heart and at mind. That's what leaving it at the altar is. Leaving it at the altar is not saying I'll never pray over it again because God commands us to pray over it. But it's saying I've... I've made this known before God and I'm doing what God's asked me to do and I know that He's answering. may not be the way I'm expecting. may not be the way I'm hoping. But I know that I've done what God's asked of me. And I have faith that He's seeing my need, whatever it may be. I want to give you a final thing and I'll hush. We see the peace of the Lord. And I just want to give these things to you very quickly. Uh, now you're not even worrying. You know I lied at the first of service. Amen. I want to say first off, it's a providential peace. It's the peace of God. It's not the peace of man, it's the peace of God. It's not the peace that Dr. Phil's going to give you, it's the peace of God. It's not the peace that Oprah would give you, it's the peace of God. It's not the peace that a pill bottle would give you, it's the peace of God. It's not the peace that a bottle of alcohol would give you, it's the peace of God. It's not the peace that an illicit relationship would give you, it's the peace of God. If you want real peace, you're going to have to have God's peace. It's that simple. It's that simple. Any other peace that you may get may give you some temporary comfort, but it's not going to settle your soul. It must be God's peace. But God promises this peace to those 
that will let the request be made known unto God with prayer and supplication, thanksgiving. It's a providential piece. But I like this. This interested me. It is a preferential piece. He said, what do you mean by that, preacher? Well, you know, I, I don't, like I said, I don't really study Hebrew and Greek. I can't read it, so I have to depend on other people if I was studying. I just don't like depending on anybody but the Lord to know what the Word of God means. And, but sometimes I'll look and, and I'll see how words have been translated at other places in the King James Bible. And it interests me to see how the translators translated this very same word in a different context and used it in another way. And so I looked at that word passeth. And we think we know what that word means. It's pretty common. It does mean to pass. But it says that passeth all understanding, which passeth all understanding. We think of the term passing like I'd pass somebody going up and down the road. But I looked at this word. It's found four other times in the Word of God. Listen to how it's used. This is the only time it's used as the word passeth. And the other places it appears is thus, higher. The word higher. It appears as the word better. I like that, better. It appears as the word excellency. Excellency. And it appears as the word supreme. So what we're dealing with when it says passeth all understanding, is we're not merely dealing with the idea that where understanding runs out, the peace of God takes over. Now, I'm going to be honest with you, and I'm going to tell you that I've, I've felt that way for years about that passage of Scripture. And I believe there's still a truth to that. I believe that even when we can't understand that the peace of God is still present, I believe there's no question about that. We can make that application. But if I read my Bible correctly, what it's saying is this, that the peace of God is better than understanding. He said, why does that make a difference, preacher? It makes a difference for this reason. If it wasn't for it being better than understanding, then the peace of God would always feel as though it's a cheap substitute for us understanding our situation. Stop and think about it. How often, and you don't have to raise your hands, uh, but how many of you have been through hard times before? How many of you have been through times you didn't understand, but you had the peace of God in your life? Can I say you had something better than understanding? Better than understanding. The peace of God is greater than understanding. I could give you a thousand reasons, but let me just give you a few. Because understanding many times does not give us an explanation. I understand certain things. And understanding is an incremental thing. You say, preacher, what do you mean by that? Well, I understand some basic things about a combustion uh, engine, but that doesn't mean I can explain it. I understand some basic functions of a computer. That doesn't mean that I can explain it. I can explain the peace of God. You say, what do you mean? I can explain the peace of God because I know that He's in control. And I know that no matter what may happen, whether I understand it or whether I can explain it or not, I know that He's in control. There's a foundation to my peace. Understanding is something that changes according to circumstances. You may understand your circumstance right now. You may not understand it tomorrow. But the peace of God, if you have it in your life, unless you forfeit it through a lack of faith or through sin, you're going to have the peace of God. I believe this is the lesson that Job learned. The, the greatest trial for Job was that he couldn't understand. And you'll find it. Read through the book of Job and you'll find hey, You don't find him complaining about the boils. You don't find him really complaining about even losing his family. You don't find him complaining about losing his, his riches. But time and time again, you'll find that Job said, Oh, that I might find a place where I could petition God. That I might go before Him and have an audience and plead my case and He'd hear my cause. 
What was Job saying? He said, I'm in the darkness and I don't understand. I don't know what's going on in my life right now and I can't explain. Come down in the book of Job. And he says, but he knoweth the way that I take. He said, I don't understand it. But I know he understands it. And when he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. He said, there's a lot of things that I don't know about. But Job latched on to something he did know when he said, For I know that my Redeemer liveth, that he shall stand at that latter day upon the earth. He said, Though worms devour this body, yet in my flesh I shall see God. He said, There's a lot of things I don't know about my life right now, but I know that God's alive. And I know that He's real in my heart and life. What had Job been doing? He'd been in the throne room. He'd been making supplication. And he got a peace that didn't just last when understanding ran out. It was better than understanding. It was a peace that was supreme and excellent and higher and better. Let me say finally, it's a preservational peace. Shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. You don't have a chance in the walk, Christian walk, without prayer. Without the peace of God, you don't have a chance. You said, Preacher, I don't feel like I have peace in my life right now. i got good news for you. There's a place where you can find it. Let me say it's necessary that you find it. We all have anxieties and worries in our life. We don't have to live with them. We may struggle with them, but we don't have to live with them. There's a place where we can find peace. And when we find that peace, you'll find it will keep you better than a lot of things will. Why, and I, I'm, I'm not going to continue on, or either that, or I'm going to keep saying that while I preach to you. Um, keep our hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Let me give you a thought. Why does it say through Christ Jesus? We, we just did not too long ago a series on the book of uh, Ephesians and looking at the seven in whom's that are spoken of. Our destiny is tied to that of the resurrected Son of God. God feels about us like He feels about His own Son. God sees us as He sees His own Son. We're accepted in the Beloved. We've made our prayer and supplication to God. God answers us like He answers His Son. The truth of the matter is, until we come to a place that we recognize that who we are and what we are is vested in the person of Christ Jesus, not in ourselves, we're never going to have the peace of God. God doesn't forgive you because of how sorry you are. He forgives you because of who Jesus Christ is. God doesn't answer your prayers because of how wonderful you are. I was thinking today. I was thinking about failures in my life. Maybe you on your birthday think about victories. I think about failures. But I was thinking about failures in my life. and I was thinking about times that I've failed the Lord and that I've sinned. And... I was praying and I was talking to the Lord and I was confessing my own wickedness in my life. And I, a thought occurred to me. I know this is deeply personal, but that's okay. The real problem is that we think we ever deserve to have been forgiven in the first place. You see, we don't want to ask God to forgive us because we don't feel like we deserve to be forgiven. But the real problem is that we ever thought we deserved to be forgiven in the first place. The real problem is that we thought our good works were such that God would be willing to forgive our bad works. 
when God forgives us only through the person of Jesus Christ. The mistake is ever thinking we deserve forgiveness. It's grace. That's the only way. It's all grace. How do we have this peace? How, do, how are our hearts and minds kept? Through prayer and supplication, through the person of Christ Jesus.